What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's only appropriate that our amazing guest, Melanie Chartoff, is here with us today. It's Darwin Day, and the Chinese New Year of the Ox, fated to be lucky and beneficial to friendships and love. And 200 years ago, 212 years ago, on 212, was the birthday of Charles Darwin, who wrote a book that shook up the world on the origin of species. He burst the bubble on creationist theory and described how animals survive, adapt, and thrive. And actor extraordinaire Melanie Chartoff pricked the bubble on stardom in her new book, Odd Woman Out, Exposure in Essays and Stories. It's a comic tragic broadside to the hype and glamour of being a star while surviving, adapting, and thriving and inviting a soft side, vulnerable to self-doubt, and ultimately to self-acceptance and even love. Good morning. Welcome, Melanie. Oh, I hope I can live up to all that you've said. Thank you so much, Diane. It's good to be with you. It's lovely to be with you. Your your book is, is wonderful. You have no fears. Um, and you have this incredible resume. It's it's really impressive, um, but in a minute, I'm going to ask you to distri- describe yourself while I um, give some, some background to our listeners. Um, from her 1950s childhood in a suburb, Melanie Chartoff describes as an abusement park, this gives you an idea as to her wit, to performing Moliere on Broadway and to voicing characters in the popular Rugrats cartoon series, Melanie Chartoff was anxious and out of character, preferring any imaginary world to her real one. Beginning as an actor on and off Broadway, she is best known for the many characters she created on Fridays, Seinfeld, Newhart, Parker Lewis, Can't Lose, Weird Science, Wise Guys, Wise Guy, and of course, Rugrats. She's recently published in a slew of journals, the Jewish journals, Funny Times, Five on Fifth, Jolarius, Defenestration, Better After 50, and two editions, two, of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Odd Woman Out is her first book. So, Melanie, in your current state of mind, um, you know, you started with the idea of being Odd Woman Out. How do you describe yourself now these days? Well, I'm an odd woman out in love with an odd man, and we have a wonderful life, even in COVID, which I thought would be claustrophobic. We have fallen more in love than ever, and uh, I know it's Darwin Day and many other, many oh, the Year of the Ox, uh, but it's Valentine's Day on Sunday, so I'm sort of celebrating that all week long. Um, I'm pretty happy with my odd life now. It's not like anybody else might have prepared for themselves, but... Um, I chose it. It suits me. And I feel very fortunate, very fortunate in these strange times. 
You know, um, you strike me as um, not being odd at all. And um, and maybe it felt coming out of the 50s that the arc of your life was an, an oddity. So many things were because it was such a narrow definition of what wasn't odd. Um, but, but, I mean, you, you have this funny subtitle um, to your book, uh, exposure in essays and stories. And sometimes writing a memoir is a little like disrobing in public. Um, and I, I thought to myself, well, not, not that you haven't done that, but you did, you were wearing a body stocking. I'm, 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 I'm clear on the, <laughs> clear on the details. Um, not that everyone around you, I'm sure wanted you to ditch the body stocking. Um, but I mean, this, um, this book in terms of disrobing, How's it been to shine this way and to maybe shine a light on some of the ups and downs, the valleys and the peaks um, for you and for other actors and performers? What's it like to have this kind of exposure? Well, um, I have to say, you know, people have said I've been very courageous to come out of the closet and talk about what I was really feeling, but I'm getting a lot of notes and uh letters from women who are saying, I felt the same way in that period of time. Um, I think the Me Too movement has kind of revived um, our ability to tell the truth about our traumas and about things that have happened to us in the past. Uh, I know that women my age, uh, over 65, have experienced a lot of the same dilemmas with men that I did. I know in my particular case, I was brought up to be very wholesome, to stay married, as to stay virgin until I became a married woman. And that, that married woman thing seemed to be further and further out from, you know, the life I was actually living. It didn't seem like I was going to be married in my early 20s and have children. It didn't seem to be in the cards for me. Um, but I think a lot of women my age dealt with the sudden availability of the pill and how that released us from our bondage of staying wholesome, pure, frigid, and uptight and clean uh, until we married. And for me, there were a lot of psychological shifts that came about with this permissive society. And it happened very suddenly, Diane. I mean, it was over like a four or five year period of time that um, morality and chastity kind of reformed and free love and and women having the same entitlements to free love as men uh, came out of the closet. So I think a lot of women are identifying with a lot that I have exposed. And certainly, I think you're aware in the last few years, perhaps because of Me Too, I think memoirists are getting a lot more honest and risking their family's reputations and telling the truth about what went down. Um, I don't have much family left. I'm, I'm sorry to say my, my dad passed a long time ago. Um, I don't have any siblings but a sister in Brooklyn. Um, my mom is 96 and living in a very protective assisted living facility in New Haven area. Um, and I didn't have children. My sister didn't have children. So we don't have that sort of uh, feeling of protection of our, our progeny from the lives that we've led. So... Um, I felt okay about coming out of the closet at this point. I'm a married woman. I own my own home. I have enough money to live on, fortunately. So I didn't feel that there was a big risk, except perhaps to my, to my mom, who might not want the world to know all about the hard times she suffered with my dad. Mm-hmm. And how has that gone? I mean, how has she responded to it? 
Well, oddly enough, um, she had a stroke when she received the audio book that same day. And I thought, oh, my goodness, is it because oh, she read the book? And I finally reached her in, in the hospital where she's located right now. And apparently uh, she was watching television at the ta- time it happened. She had not opened the audible book as yet. Thank goodness. So, um, <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it didn't have to do with that. No. And hopefully she'll feel that this, this uh, number of stories that involves our relationship and her relationship with my dad will be illustrative of a very repressive time in society. It was a very patriarchal time in society. So I want her to see it as contributing to the learning curve rather than a personal matter. You know, this I think... what it, I hope. Yes, I, I think it is a loving rendition and uh, many memoirists struggle with this, you know, uh, revealing family secrets. And as you say, Me Too has taken the lid off the Pandora's box of secrets in general. Thank goodness that honesty is more... the the way. It's what we're seeking. And I think with your mother, um, you know, her portrayal, it's very, it is honest. You you go through, I think, a lot of the, what Stan, your your husband-to-be, spoiler alert, um, ta- talks about in terms of you both, um, you know, push each other's buttons. I don't think there are many women alive who can't relate to that. And having that special gear of getting buttons pushed by their mothers. I wondered if you did write the book in order to connect this way, or what some of your motivations were for doing that, for sharing yourself. Well, one of the motivations was when I told women that I was about to get married at 65, they would cry, you give me hope, because I knew a lot of young career women who were single, heading for 40, and they were very frightened that they would not have complete lives, that they would have success in career, but also have the fulfillment of loving relationships and possibly children. Um, and giving them hope was a very motivating factor for me, showing them that no matter how complicated you feel, if you love yourself and work on loving, you probably will attract someone whom you deserve and who deserves you. I had to go through a lot of that. I know it seems trite at this point. You have to love yourself before you can love someone else. But I think I illustrated quite intimately about the thoughts that went through my mind in relationships, which generally did not have to do with my having my own volition in the relationships, that I needed to caretake men, that I needed to help them through their difficulties. That comes up a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people will read the book and say, no, turn the other way. Don't do that. There are a lot of red flags in the book that I hope women will learn from. My book is certainly not a how-to book. It's a how-not-to for the first half. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm motivated to talk about that. Also, um, Diane, I had heard a talk by Erica Young, who was a kind of a thought leader when sure. I was young in the 70s and 80s. She wrote a book called Fear of Flying, which was very radical for its time. And it was about what it would be like to be sexually free. And she spoke at an event, and I overheard it on, on the computer, and she said, I only write a book when there's a question to answer or something that has not yet been part of the cultural conversation. And I thought, for me, especially during the era of Me Too, I wasn't hearing women my age contribute to what we went through in our sexual maturation. And I wanted to expose that to the culture. There are a lot of young women, certainly uh, Pamela Adlon with her show Better Things, Chelsea Handler with all of her memoirs, Mm -hmm. uh, 
Eileen, uh, uh, well, I don't want to list names and pronounce them wrong, uh, but a lot of women are finally fessing up to the um, ordeals they endured and how they survived. Mm-hmm. Well, we were supposed to shoulder on, you know, that's the thing. We were, um, and I think your, your mother and father's relationship was, was an example of that. They, it was mm-hmm. catastrophic, and yet, you know, the idea was you, you just kept it together until one shocking day when your mother told you at the end of a, an entire conversation about a million other things that, by the way, I'm leaving your dad. I mean, I think you must have wanted to drop the phone. I mean, it, it must have been a huge shock. Um, it was a I, shock, really, yeah. because I wasn't sure she could do it, first of all. I hadn't known my mother to be as strong and assertive, but she had had an auto accident in which she was nearly killed, survived by a thread, and my father sent it to therapy because she wouldn't drive uh, anymore and because the therapy came free with insurance. Mm-hmm. So she went to therapy, and my dad would call me, and he'd say, I don't understand. This therapy is not helping your mother. She won't wash the dishes anymore. She's talking back to me. And I thought, oh, I was just so delighted that my mother was asserting herself and not letting him push her around so much. And little by little, this therapy and new friends that she made gave her a self-confidence that gave her the, the, the balls or the ovaries to mm-hmm. get out of this 42-year relationship with my father and find out what it was like to be herself to be not living with anyone else. She had never lived alone until she finally got an apartment with another woman who was leaving her husband at the same time uh, Mm -hmm. in New Haven. And New Haven was their new haven. They kind of hid out for a few years until they could get divorced and show their faces in public again. They used to go out in disguises, my mother and her friend. They would wear wool hats and sunglasses so that they could go to their usual stores and libraries without being recognized. Oh, my gosh. And I actually, I wrote, a, I wrote a movie about this, which I think I'm going to turn into a book because it's so hilarious and so moving uh, to see how my mother finally stood on her own. And my father had to learn to stand on his own for the remainder of his life, too. Right. Uh, which, What's the title? Yeah. What's the title of this? It's the called movie? New Haven. Oh, yeah. Perfect. A new yeah. harbor that each of them had to find for themselves. Well, you know, there's a there's a lot there. I mean, in one sense, um, you know, you were then building up a lot of self reliance. I I think maybe in response to your mother's dependency, um, it seemed to me that you were you know you decided you you, you wanted to be financially independent. Um, your considerable talents that you were honing with your craft. These um, produced, you know, a a kind of success, obviously, but there was always this dissociation, right, where you you were not quite sure who you were because as an actor, you're often, um, first of all, like stranded with other actors um, and that becomes your whole social circle, your whole um, world. And you kind of lose yourself in the bargain. Um, So there was a lot of me that really wondered, I mean, you know, the happiest Valentine's Day to you and and finding love at 65. But I, part of me wondered if you'd had been ready before then and in what ways you were you not ready before then? Well, you know, Luck of the draw, Diane. I, I felt I was ready a lot sooner, but I hadn't come across men that I preferred. I 
don't go to bars. I wasn't leaving the house all that much because I was having long hiatuses between work. Um, and I was in therapy for 20 years, and I, I had a wonderful woman, really strong woman, who really guided me that um, to tell me that in the silences between her and me, and this is such a simple element of the therapy, I didn't have to perform for her, that um, if she didn't smile and give me approval or applause, why would I discern that she was disapproving? When she was quiet, I think she was judging me. And, and the, the, in that tabula rasa, it became very clear that I projected that I had to protect myself by performing in every interaction, especially in the quiet. In my home, in my household of origin, silence was very dangerous. There was so much roiling beneath the surface. But in this therapy of 20 years, um, I learned that in the silence, there could be my own love of self, even if the other person I was in the room with didn't love me, that I could fill it with my own self-love. And that simple equation was a period of great, projected a great period of discovery for me. I saw all the projections that I made about other people and what I had to do to manipulate or counter them or manipulate myself to get their approval. Mm-hmm. It's like a lens opens up that wasn't there before. And I wonder, you know, we have just a couple of minutes till we need to take a commercial break. But, you know, if you're working in theater and the audience is right there and you're aware of every response and you're aware of their reactions, how you could not become so attuned to approval and how performance anxiety just strikes me as an absolutely natural outcome to that. But as you say, you know, self-love, it it may be trite, but let's get it to be so trite that we don't even need to say it anymore because it really <laughs> it really is the thing, right? That and that's the thing that I, I really thought about when Stan came into your life. I mean, you had you had gotten to that point where you were filling the silences and the gaps and the periods of no uh, reinforcement with love of your own. And that is really the key. It's the only love you can have forever. And um, it's just wonderful that you arrived at that destination. You also talk about, um, you know, needing your lines. Like, you know, if you're going to be a girlfriend, that was your, you, you had mastered that role. You'd done it, you know, these many times. <laughs> and, but like, how are you going to be a wife? And looking to guidance for your lines and for the dimensions of your character that you were going to play, I mean, how is it to be now playing yourself? Well, it's much better, actually. Um, all those characters I've ever played are still in me. They were all facets of a woman. Um, and I have to say, I played a lot of neurotic characters uh, early on. And then as time went on, I evolved into playing mother characters. And usually there was a quirk I would bring, uh, the writers would bring to a role and I would fulfill. Um, But I got to play more married women. Um, I think there was a turning point. I did a guest star thing with Kirk Douglas on a show called uh, Touched by an Angel. And in this show, uh, I had a husband and a son. And I never felt more capable of being a mother and a wife than I did in accessing those those aspects of myself in that show. Mm -hmm. I was a mother watching her husband dying and had to comfort my son and be heroic and that role really gave me something. I know it was not a illustrious role by any means, but for me, it was real formative. 
I think I was in my early 50s then. It's it's very cool how that can inform your your real life, that you know you know taking on the dimensions and the character um, that you know that that helps you and informs this um, role for your for your real life. Kirk Douglas, if he doesn't do it, no one's going to do it. I mean that <laughs> I'm sure that interaction <laughs> so so great. Um, we are going to is inspiring. Yeah, we we are going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to pick up a thread you just mentioned, and that is the writing career of Melanie Chartoff, and where is that going to lead? Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Melanie Chartoff. A real pleasure to speak with you, Melanie. And we're making that segue from acting to writing. You do both, which is just such an interesting transition for me because one seems to involve the external and awareness of the external. And, and writing is solitary, comes from the inside out. Um, and I wondered if you'd like to talk about this difference between material in your script and inner substance and how you're bringing those together and, and how they shape your identity. Well, it's, it's a long story. I, I started writing when I was very young, and it was thought that I would be a writer. I had poetry published in the New Haven Register. I wrote a play called The Queen's New Dress that was put on in my fourth grade class, and other mm. communities came to see it. Um, and then I, I guess I got afraid to be alone, and, and I found that the joy of ensemble work, which is my forte, I love being in an ensemble, I feel lonely being a star all alone on the stage, but being in an ensemble with other gifted performers is my joy. I needed the ensemble because I didn't have family. So theater for me became a community. Uh, It was almost like a temple, the theater for me. I got a sense of reverence and awe when I walked into a theater like one might get at a church or a synagogue, it was that kind of feeling that something magical here happened if everybody believed and had faith in the same story that we could create something just magical. So I fell away from the writing as I matured because I was having a great deal of success. There were times when I was doing two series at one time and I was being driven from one to the other set. 
Uh, those were the glory days. Those are the days of saving up money and having some authority over which way my career went. Um, and then in my 50s, as happens for so many women, I had stopped. I was, I was a regular in a television series, and then that faded away when I was in my early 50s. And then suddenly the, the loneliness hit, uh, and I decided to, to go online and start dating and to start writing. And I began to get published, um, mostly humor pieces, and get paid a little bit of money. And I, I got a sense that I would not be making as much money on these little writing expeditions as I had as an actor. But it was okay with me because I learned to be alone in a room with my imagination, which was no longer my enemy. It had become my friend. And I began to harness it, utilizing all the emotional uh, refinements I had developed as an actor, going to where the pain was. <clears throat> and twisting it oftentimes into comedy. And I began to get such pleasure from this. And it wasn't so much about the immediate gratification about having applause in the room. There was this pleasure of knowing that certain minds would immerse themselves in these stories and go on the journey I was emotionally, uh, sad or happy, silly or poignant, that they might have an experience one-on-one with me uh, like a large audience might have one on a hundred, you know, in a theater. And that became really pleasurable for me. And it became its own reward as I began to get published more. And Chicken Soup for the Soul published three of my stories now. And they've been a wonderful place for me to put stuff. And a lot of these yeah. other literary magazines. Um, and I have more ideas that I can, that I, than I could contain in this book, frankly, Diane. And I'm currently w- w- making a book of Corona poems. Uh, dealing with cool. realizations I've had, some black comics, some very elegaic, um, over this last year. I'm sure a lot of writing is going to come out of this period, and I'm, I'm writing too. I have a lot of uh, black comic poems and um, really intimate poems about what it's like being alone with yourself without the stimulation of society uh, mm-hmm. on anything but virtual platforms. I love the, so I, that you... Yeah, and I'm excited that you're writing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's right. I didn't mean to interrupt you either. Sorry. No, um, but I love that you use the word intimate because there is such an intimacy to writing, and it is an exchange of energy, emotion, just that it occurs in the imaginary plane, right? In the in the plane that we can't see. Or necessarily, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily tangible, but it is when you talk to people, you know, have, you know, communicated with you through your writing and have really gotten in touch. I felt that I'd gotten closer in touch with myself for having read your book, Odd Woman Out. And oh, I think how wonderful. That's a, that's a real gift. Um, that's a great you know, compliment. That's wonderful. Yeah, no kidding. Because... Um, you know, when you talk about this, um, the COVID times, I'm so glad you're writing poetry. Also, I think you have a great economy with words and I'm not surprised at all that poetry and the rhythm of it is um, something that you're attracted to, is that, you know, you, it, there's lots to say. Some of it is elegaic about these times, but then there's the humor and let's be real, which you keep it real throughout. This was the first time that your husband, your newly married husband, relatively speaking, had heard you fart. And I think to myself, well, that is the problem with being cooped up like this. Everyone hears everything. So if we, we weren't going to be real before, we're now, we're now forced to it. Um, but let's talk about the role of humor and 
does did it at some point i mean i think you really you have a lot of fluidity between tra- tragedy comedy you know heartbreaking scenarios and comedy and you're gifted as a comedian what what how is that device for you is is comedy something that you once used to as a kind of a defense and now oh, you yeah. see Okay. And does it open up to you now in a different way or how is it for you now? Well, there's a lot more depth perception. As we age, we experience the suffering of others so much more profoundly and our own suffering as well. And uh, certainly it was a coping mechanism as a child in our household. If uh, my sister and I could make my parents laugh, they would stop quarreling and the tension would dissipate for a while. And I equated laughter with love. If I could make people laugh, I felt like I had a, a good hand on their hearts and that they would respond to me more favorably than if I was just a, a mean person or a downer. And that device sort of stayed in me um, you know, early on to defend myself against the pogrom and Holocaust mentalities, genetic mentalities of my family. Mm-hmm. And then later, kind of when trauma was happening to me, I was usually able to periscope my, my brain up and see this from another point of view that somewhat saved me, like witnessing from a, an elevated perspective, which is something all comedians do, uh, helped me witness some of the stuff that was happening for me. Now, disassociation is not always a healthy thing, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the long run. But for me, it was helpful using comedy as a disassociative technique. Mm -hmm. Well, it protects you, right? It protects you from hurt. It protects you from things that might happen otherwise. Yeah. And um, I had two minds or three minds in a lot of fraught situations. I could see it from several perspectives. And that gave me a real headache, you know, um, as I started to mature. And I didn't want to contain that many points of view at the same time. And I think being in therapy for that 20 years really helped me unify a perspective so that I was only seeing from my own point of view. Well, I hope so. I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that. And this integration and this unity. Because when poor Stan proposed to you in the bathtub and you were wearing only a shower cap and your glasses and you thought it might be a shtick. I mean, I was, I I had to grab the edge of the day. I was just like, oh my God, you can't, the poor guy. And you're sitting there, you're in the bathtub with him and you're, you're, you're thinking this is like a a put on, but it's in one way, it's very sad, you know, also because, you know, you were at the point where you, you almost, you had to bring it all together. You didn't know what was real. You didn't, you know, as far as I know, Stan is not an actor. And also he's an incredibly sensitive guy, right? Like he wouldn't be doing that. But then there were like these 19 conversations going on in your head. Well, what is it about? You know, which is it? I mean, I'm just glad to hear, Melanie, that you, you've, you've been able to drop into yourself to a place where you can hear one voice, if that's what you so choose. That was a hard-won victory. A very hard one. And and part of the disruption there, I had been more unilateral in my point of view, but being with my mom always sends me back. Mm -hmm. I revert back because we pushed each other's buttons that particular evening. And Mm -hmm. I suddenly was um, prismed where I was seeing from like through a crystal. There were so many different angles on what I was going through. And I think that that story, the love bath does show the mind of a crazy person, but I was especially disappointed because I had been so healthy for the previous years and 
straight. It was really being around mom that triggered me into that fracture again. It's it's like the dreaded holidays where we've had a great year, feel really together and whole, and then we get home and then boom, <laughs> it's just all over. But but you know, I wondered and you know and and that that evolves over time too. And I wondered then when you hold the book in your hand or you're listening to your audio book, which is fantastic, you read it. Um also just, you know, with you're a voice actor, you read it with great, great joy and beauty. But when you externalize it, when you look at the words that you wrote, do you see it differently? Does it morph differently? Like the scene with your mother where, you know, she was just about to, I think she did actually say, you know, you're still dying your hair. I mean, this is when your new boyfriend is there. And, you know, it's it's really hard to go there, right? And say, well, this is just where she's coming from and all this different stuff. But has it changed for you over time? And now that you see the words? Well, um, you know, everything that we did yesterday is the past. And um, since I developed this book and, and finished it in, in March, really, with this uh, epilogue about coronavirus, I've grown even more. I mean, don't you look back at, at, at film on yourself or at tapes of yourself and say, oh, I'm so much wiser then than I was last week. I think I look at all this and I say, well, I got that off my chest and let's see what I can become now. So reading the book to me, it's the past. Mm-hmm. Um, in March, when I wrote the Corona poem, was the past. And I'm looking forward to what I evolve into as a writer now. Uh, I won't be plumbing the depths of my own life quite so much. I'll be inventing new stories. And I'm really excited about that part. I haven't hit writer's block yet. I mean, there's some mornings I wake up and I think, oh, I have no talent today. I'm just going to go back to bed. But most times I wake up and I have so many ideas that I don't know which to, to juice up first. Well, I'm, so I'm excited, kind of excited to hear that. Of course, I still want to act. I don't want, to, want it to go down that I don't want to act. I've been doing some Zoom plays, which mm-hmm. feels wonderful in lieu of actually having theater or film to, to participate in. Um, but, yeah, I'm so glad I've uh, proven myself to my, myself by, by writing the book. You know, that whole not enoughness thing is really, you know, it's, it, it, there's like a life coach guy, Rock Thomas, who says, you know, you got to ride that not enoughness, like it's a stallion, you know, just ride it to, to mm. the point where it, it is such a motivator to, um, to see what we can actually um, achieve. And as you say, prove to ourselves. I wonder if you feel that, um, you know, the past, it gets a bad rap, right? Like you're not supposed to dwell on the past, but you know, it's making us, it's making our future. And, you know, mm-hmm. Tony, Tony Morrison said, you know, as writers, what we do is remember and to remember this world is to create it. Um, I'm super psyched though, that you're going to go in different directions because you've got a vast imagination and a kind of a zany humor do you feel that there's you're going to hit any walls in terms of ageism? Is that something that's alive and well these days, or how is that? Well, certainly in Hollywood, it's alive and well. Most of the films and streaming television shows we see feature men, but there's a little bit of a turning around now. And I think the Black Lives Matter uh, movement has done a lot for women now that there's an inclusionary feeling in feminism that these women are our sisters and they have suffered untold miseries 
and their stories are important. And I feel a turn, uh, certainly in terms of older women, Diane Keaton will continue to work, Candace Bergen will continue to work, Meryl will continue, Diane Weist, who's one of my idols, will continue to work. Um, and a lot of us get left behind. You know, there's so many series regulars, Diane, from shows you may have loved in the 80s and 90s, who are lying fallow because they're too charismatic to just play bit parts in shows, and mm-hmm. they're not famous enough or uh, powerful enough to star in movies when Candace Bergen is available. Um, so I am a part of a, you know, a, a, a pained society who is learning how to do things for themselves. There are more and more women producing, which is great. Uh, more and more women writing their intimate stories. Uh, more and more female comedians that let it all hang out. Terrific stand-ups. Um, and I was thinking about Eve Ensler in this respect. Do you remember Eve Ensler? Sure, the vagina monologues. Yes, and I did the vagina monologues uh, back at the turn of the millennium, too, for a a long while. And um, she kind of brought the vagina out of the closet and started saying, what is so dirty about this body part? And she, her show was just pivotal politically for so much of society. It suddenly became permissible to discuss these things. So I feel like a lot of we women exposing ourselves today owe it to her. To, mm-hmm. to break the to break open that barrier. Um, I, so yeah. I, I don't feel, you know, I do a lot of stage readings. There's a wonderful playwright called Eugene Pack who writes great roles for older women, and I've been fortunate to be in, in the ensemble of wonderful people. I just did a play with Cheryl Strong a couple of weeks ago that's uh, to fund the actor, the actor's fund. It's actually running online uh, in repertory with a bunch of other plays with a bunch of other terrific actors. And, um, you know, I'm definitely going to keep asserting myself as an actor. I'm doing a play for Purim, which is a Jewish holiday, and for Passover in the weeks to come. So it feels like, oh, now this is the life I want to have. Happily married to my love, writing and acting all in tandem and alternately. And I also teach, Diane, I teach um, socially awkward folks how to make themselves more stellar on virtual platforms and in real life, too. I coach people all over the world, in, in China, in Australia, Detroit. Um, when people are in need, they find me. I don't advertise too much, but the right people find me when they need this kind of um, urging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find the Internet is ideal because it has a microphone and it has a camera, so people learn to get comfortable with the cold lens of mm-hmm. a camera. Yeah, that's true. We weren't before. We didn't have that exposure and finding voice is tremendous. Well, how do people find you? What's the best way to find you, Melanie, now that you've, and I'd love to hear about how to find the the play online. We just have a moment before a break, but what's the best way to find you, Melanie Chartoff? MelanieChartoff.com is my actor and uh, credits website. I have a very active Facebook page on which I post everything I'm doing. Uh, every week there are bulletins about stuff I'm involved in. Uh, tonight I'm in a show called Story Smash, uh, which is on YouTube. And I'm, uh, it's, I'm one of the judges, I think, of a comedy competition. It's, it's a blast. It's like a game show, and I'm very honored to be part of it. Story Smash is on at 7 on the West Coast. Um, Sunday I'm in a Valentine's Day presentation, which features my book, um, you can also go to um, charismatizing.com, charisma with T-I-Z-I-N-G, 
com after it after it and that's the way to reach me if you're interested in some coaching or talking about how we might work on whatever pitch whatever book whatever idea you're selling and how to make you the best person to be a spokesperson for it well i would feel safe in your hands when we come back from the break we're going to talk a little bit about fame, the distorted lens that it creates, and how fame is a little bit the cart before the horse these days. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Melanie Chartoff. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Melanie Chartoff. And Melanie, you are breaking barriers. We talked a little bit about being an influencer You don't have to be young to be one. And it feels as though because you are an ensemble cast member that you are interested in bringing others along. And that's something very different from some of the singularity of fame and how it affects people. Just talk to us a little bit about how fame worked for you. It it wasn't always positive. It wasn't even always healthy. And then there's also the fundamental problem of what to do with it when others can't cope with it. How's that work now? Well, now it's okay. I'm not a, you know, as illustrious as I was in my youth. Um, I have a kind of a quieter presence in terms of people knowing who I am. They know me from my Facebook posts, and they know me from my voice and run, run, reruns on the Rugrats cartoon series. So my face and my body are not well-known, as well-known in this era. Um, And I don't have to worry about what I look like when I go outside. Well, first of all, I'm wearing a mask. But um, I don't have to do my hair and wear makeup, wear a bra. I can kind of just go out as I feel, not worry that I'm going to be photographed everywhere. You know, there was a period where celebrities were very scrutinized by paparazzi everywhere they went. And I do have a story in the book about uh, having, having to go to the Hustler store to buy a product for medical reasons and getting photographed coming out of there and how I ended oh, yeah, up sure. on the worst dress page <laughs> in the Hustler, and not in Hustler, in Star Magazine, which everybody oh, in the grocery line saw. So um, I'm not as worried about that kind of exposure. People are less interested in looking 
at me these days because I'm older. Um, and I'm not on a series, the hit visible primetime series right now. Very few of us are, actually. Uh, so it's easier. But when I was younger, I, I had friends who were not famous, um, you know, when I first arrived in Los Angeles, old friends and new. And when I got this celebrity and success, there was a lot of resentment from friends who were actors who were not working. It's a terrible thing to have your success make other people feel badly. Mm-hmm. And in my own family, my mother was uncomfortable with me. Um, she would kind of giggle and glaze over, um, you know, when I was around. Um, she'd been watching me too much on television and not seeing me in real life, I guess. But it was difficult. It was very, um, there was a lot of estrangement. Um, and there was a lot of alienation and a lot of loneliness. Until I made more friends who were successful, who all understood what it was like to suddenly step out of your society and, and be very, very visible. Mm-hmm. To be a known person. I mean, and I wonder, why is that so- thought to be such an evil thing? It's, it is really, um, it's like if you do a really good job at what you do, a physician or something, then that's, that's okay. But if you seek out the limelight or you find yourself at a news conference having to field questions like Anthony Fauci, I mean, that makes you the complete lightning rod. I mean, what is it about our psyches that doesn't give permission, doesn't celebrate the idea of stepping into the limelight like that. Hmm. Well, I think if you're using the limelight just for self-aggrandizement, it's suspect. People feel resentful. But these days, I think that all the famous people I know who are stepping into the limelight are taking their causes with them, are taking their philanthropies with them. And I think it's a whole different consciousness now about that. I think the days of, you know, Paris Hilton or folks that were just trying to get attention for being beautiful or being famous or being rich uh, are passing us. Um, There is a segment of society that will always respond to that, want its picture, want its autograph, want to buy its products. Um, But at least in my society, uh, there's not a lot of judgment about it. And it depends. You know, Tom Hanks is kind of the master of making his position uh, as an actor and a humanitarian, very loud and unthreatening in the world. He's so gifted, and yet he's such a good guy, such a nice guy, and you feel that in all of his interviews. Um, I think there are a lot of performers and actors that have that kind of good man quality or good woman quality, and they're Mm -hmm. toiling away in the trenches, working behind the scenes to produce films for women, to uh, contribute to causes, breast cancer research, uh, poverty, uh, re- the ability to read. There are a lot of people I know are, are carrying on with these causes, and I grant them that light limelight. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. There's more substance to it, and I agree with you that that's the value of the shallow fame for its own sake it really has passed us. I think it's, I think that is in the zeitgeist, that that, that is really like over. Um, and mm. there is yeah, I mean, I think that that is it's a wonderful thing. It also shows, you know, the heart of the person. Um, it, it is maybe less alienating. Um, and yes, everyone wants to know how to be self-effacing and fabulous at the same time, like Tom Hanks does. But, you know, you, you also mentioned there's a more depth of feeling as um, we get older and maybe just as time gets, goes on and we face crisis after crisis, 
maybe there is a response to that and people realizing we can't afford to sit it out anymore either. Comedians mm-hmm. and female comedians. This is just near and dear to my heart. Although I'm shocked that when you said love is not humor anymore, I'm really very devastated by that still. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's really <laughs> female comedians. They're, we're re- they are really having a moment, right? And you write very funny material. Um, would you like to see your book? acted would um what what do you think about you know doing more um comedic work uh what's what does that look like for you well i love the bittersweet you know i'm suspicious of happy endings i always like when there's a drop of acid in the joy because it seems much more realistic to me and and i'm a lapsed jewess coming from a depressive family in history um but my favorite stuff is stuff that makes me laugh and cry. Like Patton Oswalt, as an example, I don't know if you know his, his specials or his stand-up work. His wife passed some years ago. It was tragic. It was sudden. They had a new little daughter. And he's turned that, that material into more of a one-man show than just a stand-up comedy act. Oh, he makes you laugh your ass off. But at the same time, he tells a very poignant story about having to become the sole parent to this little girl. He tells hilarious stories about the way people express sympathy awkwardly. And, um, and even Dave Chappelle, of whom I'm a big fan, has mm-hmm. brought a lot more serious social commentary in his work. Not as funny as he was. Even David Sedaris, whom I also adore, his last books are not quite so silly anymore. He'd make me laugh out loud reading alone in a room sometimes when I read his early books. But the last few books are more about his relationship, the passing of his parents and his sister. Uh, there was only one big laugh about a cow in his most recent book. Um, so I, I think that the nature of comedy is changing. And, um, you know, there'll always be Larry David who's making incredible social commentary, using himself as a sacrificial lamb, sort of showing what misanthropic attitudes are like, you know, trying to break the rules trying mm-hmm. to get a free lunch. Um, so I do think it's changing. We're using ourselves differently now as comedians. Mm-hmm. In terms of stand-up, I don't think I'll do it anymore. I wasn't a big success of it because I couldn't do jokes really very well. There's a lot of funny moments in my book, but they usually come out of a, a fraught scene with a lot of pain in it. Mm-hmm. And that didn't fit in, in my comedy stand-up. As a stand-up, I did a, a characters, kind of daffy female characters, kind of sending up the dumb blonde characters. Um, but that was never like, I was never a monologist who could do the Carson show with my best 10 minutes. I was never that kind of comedian. So I think I'll just keep writing and I'd love to do, I have done a music, I have a musical version of this book called Odd Woman Out that I did some years ago. It was commissioned by the Joshua Tree Comedy Festival And that's that's how I decided to develop this into a book. An agent said to me, this is a book. This is literary. This is spiritual. It's not just a musical. It has to be a book. So that was the cue I took into sitting down and actually writing it instead of jumping around on the stage, dancing and singing. Mm -hmm. Well, the bittersweet, right, that requires kind of a dialogue and interaction. And, you know, you said yourself, you're not the person that wants to stand up there by yourself. And the bittersweet does require, you know, interaction with other um, characters, real life characters. And, you know, this this idea that, um, you know, we're coming into maybe a more 
sober, um, somber way of being funny that it mm. may be, you know, it was always about sex and death. Those are the funniest subjects somehow. And, you know, but there's some other tinge to it. And I think that you're onto something there. So we'll look forward to seeing and hearing uh, Odd Woman out when um, when it comes, at, when we get to hear the, get the well, I, you know, it is a musical, but we, we look forward to future iterations of it. I must ask you, do you still feel the Odd Woman out? Do I now? Mm-hmm. Depends on the room I'm in. Most of my friends are odd now, so I think we all fit quite nicely together. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things you asked a second ago, Diane, I just want to say that I do visualize my book as short, like uh, films, uh, as if it were on, you know, Modern Love, which is the New York Times developed column every week they have a, a Sunday issue which has modern love and it talks about love in this age and I would very much love my stories to be part of a uh, an anthology show like that that's a dream well it would be well deserving um, I think that the fact that you know a teaspoon of sugar helps the medicine go down I mean these antics with Stan who we love because of <laughs> His, his embrace of you, and and as as well he should. But I mean, the the it does lend itself to this kind of anecdotal. But yet you get um you know the pierce in the heart um and you know he might be calling right now. Who knows? Um, but <laughs> but um, I'm glad to hear that there's going to be life beyond this odd woman out. I really recommend that everyone read it, listen to it, um, listen to Melanie's voice. Listen to the way that you encourage others, Melanie, and um, help to coach others, bringing the rest of your ensemble along. It's really very inspirational. I know you probably don't like that, just that word. It's inspirational, and it's grounding, and it's centering, and it's you keep it real. Thanks so much for being here, Melanie Chartoff. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, wisdom with us. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe this week and keep it real. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.